Hello and welcome to A Bookish Home. I'm your host, librarian and writer, Laura Zaro-Gabinski, and today Eleanor Shearer is here to discuss her debut novel, River Sing Me Home, a beautiful page-turning and redemptive story of a mother's gripping journey across the Caribbean to find her stolen children in the aftermath of slavery. River Sing Me Home is a Good Morning America book club pick and was named a most anticipated book of 2023 by Real Simple, Goodreads, Book Club, Book Riot, and many more. Eleanor Shearer is a mixed-race writer and the granddaughter of Windrush-generation immigrants. She splits her time between London and Ramsgate on the English coast so that she never has to go too long without seeing the sea. For the master's degree in politics at the University of Oxford, she did. Eleanor studied the legacy of slavery and the case for reparations, and her fieldwork in St. Lucia and Barbados helped inspire her first novel. Eleanor, welcome to A Bookish Home. Thanks for being here and congrats on your new book. Um, it's so exciting to see all the buzz um, and excitement surrounding the release. Uh, thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. Um, so I have, I have so many questions about this book. I um, just thought it was such a beautiful story. I loved the characters. And um, I know there's so many connections to um, work that you've done and um, your own life. And I'm just wondering, like, I always love to hear kind of that kernel of inspiration. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about River Sing Me Home and I guess kind of how the book started for you? Yes, absolutely. So um, my grandparents came to the UK from the Caribbean in 1957. And then my mum was born in the UK, as was I. Um, but that heritage has meant I've always been drawn to Caribbean history. And when I was uh, 16, I went to this exhibition with my mum, all about uh, slavery in the Caribbean and the ways in which it was uh, resisted. And at that exhibition, they just had this little panel that said, after emancipation, uh, lots of women went and tried to find the children that were taken away from them and sold to different plantations. So um, one of the great crimes of slavery was the way that it uh, destroyed families, broke up families. You were living with the constant threat of your children being taken away from you. And I thought there was something so incredibly brave about refusing that destruction and putting the pieces of your family back together again after slavery ended. So that was the, the first kernel of the idea. Ever since I, I heard that when I was a teenager, I knew one day I wanted to write a, a novel about it. And then um, completely coincidentally, I ended up doing this master's, not at all thinking it would be in service of writing a book, but just because I was interested in the politics of reparations and the legacy of slavery in the Caribbean. So I was doing all this field work and interviewing people about how slavery is remembered and after I finished that, I realized this is a huge resource for, for this book that I've been, been meaning to write and have been intimidated about starting because I think, thought it would require too much research. So it was a kind of happy coincidence that I ended up doing that master's and then that research ended up forming a, a good chunk of what went into the, the eventual novel. Well, one of the things I really like about historical fiction is um, I feel like I learned so much more about a historical period by kind of walking in a particular character's shoes and experiencing what they're experiencing as opposed to maybe reading like certain dates and names and things in a, in a textbook. Um, and for me, I felt like I, um, you know, I'm in the U.S. and I feel like I definitely learned much more about slavery here and kind of the ways in which as it ended you know, the system was still carried out in different ways 
in the mm-hmm. South, and I'm sure I'm not alone, maybe American listeners um, kind of are more familiar slavery um, here in this country. And I'm kind of curious if you could tell us a little bit more, because I, I, I thought this was really something that I thought was great about um, the book, kind of getting to kind of fill in those holes that I should know about kind of the slavery system in the Caribbean and, and also how they're, um, you know, it's, it's ended right as the book has started, but in so many ways, people still don't have their freedom. So I guess if you could just kind of give an American audience a little bit, a little bit about kind of the world this is being set in and kind of what was happening at the time. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it's not just an American audience. A big motivation for me with this book is I think that in the UK, it's not very widely understood how Caribbean slavery functioned, how it ended, as you say, how exploitation kind of continued. So um, I was trying to correct a a bit of a British ignorance there as well. And um, the novel starts in 1834, which is the year that the Emancipation Act in the British Caribbean came into force. But um, the reason I wanted to set the book at this time is because a big theme in the novel is what it means to be free. And this was a very ambiguous point in the history of the Caribbean because legally um, enslaved people have been freed, but the law states that they have to work for their former masters without pay for another six years. And it comes from this very racist and paternalistic idea that they weren't ready for freedom. So they needed this transitional period. So um, that apprenticeship system as it's it's known most British people don't know about that they don't know that there was this strange in-between time and then even when that ended there was still you know in most of the islands there wasn't really anything you could do other than work on a plantation so exploitation continued in the Caribbean arguably continues in, in different forms right up to this day um so that was one thing that I wanted the novel to acknowledge is that that's um the ambiguities around emancipation because in the UK, I think we tell ourselves a very triumphalist story about how brilliant it was that we abolished slavery and then the Royal Navy was doing its bit patrolling and turning back slave ships. But actually, that doesn't really speak to the way that freedom was experienced by enslaved people and also the way that they really fought for and defined their own freedom. You know, the book is about this woman, Rachel, going to try and find her children because for her, that is a way of making a new life for herself after slavery has ended. Um, i like to say this is not a book about slavery it's about a book about what comes after and I'm interested in how you do begin to having been through this incredibly traumatic experience that will have shaped you and changed you in ways that you can't just shrug off how do you still make a life life for yourself how do you still find love and joy because I think the point is that even in the darkest point in history in history people were still finding love and hope and joy so I ultimately wanted it to be an uplifting novel even though it does deal with some slightly dark subject matter at times. I think it definitely is. And kind of watching Rachel sort of take control of her story in that way and, and try to find her children. And um, she's such a brave character. And um, I really kind of liked watching, watching her story unfold, but there's different points where as a reader, you're kind of, thinking and maybe some of this is in the flashbacks too about um I think at different point characters say like oh this might have been during the uprising like England will be on our side or is going to help us or something along those lines and it just got me wondering about like does it do something in terms of like the British perception of the time of the whole slavery system or even of like how much freedom people have after that they're at that like in England versus America, like here, 
our plantations and everything were within our midst kind of, Mm -hmm. and in England they're removed. Does that lead into some of how like they're able to get away with um, the treatment after slavery, like on paper has ended. I don't know if that makes sense, but I just was wondering about that, like difference there versus here. Yeah, it it does make sense. And it's a difference that I'm very alive to. You know, I said earlier, I think that British people are very ignorant about Caribbean history. And I think a big part of that is the fact that these places were part of an empire that doesn't exist anymore. So there is this sense of washing your hands of that history in a way that it strikes me as an outsider that in the UK, sorry, in the US, the the national conversation about race is, is fraught at times and it's difficult, but at least it's taking place under one one national identity and uh, one country. Um, so uh, the um, the gap between kind of what Britain intended the law to be and what the plantation owners actually enforced. I mean, in in a way, that gap did produce conditions that were worse in practice than many people in Britain probably knew. I'd say it was, you know. I've seen some people wonder whether this period that the novel takes place in where slaves weren't really given their freedom, was that a kind of act of resistance on planters? No, it was part of the law. You know, even some of our most celebrated abolitionists in the UK, these white men like William Wilberforce, they all were advocates of gradualist emancipation. They all believed that the um, enslaved people needed this time to prepare for freedom. So that wasn't at all a kind of exploitation of that um, distance between the British government and what was happening on the ground. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, it is. And I, I and I think um, a, a big part of this exhibition that I went to that sort of started the, the whole novel, it was called Making Freedom. And the idea was that yeah, in, resistance by enslaved people really catalyzed the process of ending slavery. And a big part of that was that I'm not saying there were very many people in the UK who um, campaigned against slavery for moral reasons, um, but there's also a thread of economic self-interest that runs through the history of um, the way that the British approached abolition. So the fact that it was just after the Haitian Revolution um, in what was uh, formerly a French colony, but then produced the first independent black republic outside of Africa. Um, suddenly the British are looking at what's happened in, in France and how if you don't get a handle on resistance and rebellion, you can lose control, not just of the slave system but of the whole colony and it becomes independent they're then taking these steps whether it's abolishing the slave trade or abolishing slavery itself to try and keep control of their colonies um and the final thing i'll, I'll say about this which is um sort of showing just how much these systems kind of echo through time and really come through into almost the present day is that another little fact that i picked up from this exhibition that really lodged in my my head and has done to this day is um in the 1930s, when the Caribbean was still part of uh, the British Empire and the government was curious about how labour conditions were there and, you know, didn't really know exactly how people were being treated, they commissioned this uh, investigation. It was called the Moyne Commission. And the findings were so awful in terms of exploitation, deprivation, working conditions, that the government in the UK suppressed the publication until after the Second World War because they were so worried about giving propaganda to the nazis and so wow that's a very powerful reminder of i think it both can be true that there were 
gaps within the law or ways that people were being treated on the ground in the Caribbean that the British government weren't fully aware of. But also, even if the government were fully aware, they wouldn't necessarily have done the right thing and acted on on them because there's always broader questions of economic and political self-interest at play. So, um, yes, it, it does, I think, shape the history of the, the UK and its relationship with the Caribbean in a very different way to, to, to the US, the fact that these places are so far apart and are no longer one one nation. Yeah, that is fascinating. If you love hearing about the path to publishing a book on this podcast, I highly recommend you check out the hashtag AmWriting podcast with authors KJ Delantonia, Jess Leahy, and Serena Bowen. Hashtag AmWriting is the place for fun, actionable advice for getting your work done for writers in every genre. This is my favorite writing podcast. I've been listening for years and the hosts have really become author mentors I can easily access while I take a walk or wait for the school bus. I've gotten so many great tips on approaches to outlining, writing a first draft, revision, craft book recommendations, promotion, accountability. I can't imagine trying to achieve my goal of publishing a book without their weekly show. And their archive is a treasure trove. If there's something in your writing life you're wondering about or struggling with, they've done an episode on it. Start listening to Hashtag Am Writing Today with your favorite podcast app. And if you're interested in hearing more about co-host KJ Delantonia's latest novel, In Her Boots, which is a laugh-out-loud delight and must-read, you can go back to episode 113 of A Bookish Home. Well, one of the things I was thinking as I was reading, you know, I'm curious kind of where you said that there is real, like in Rachel's story, she's finding her children after slavery has ended and that there are real um, accounts of women doing that. And I just wondered kind of how you find the historical record of the time. Like are, th- are these things being passed down, stories passed down orally from then or... Um, I guess, like, what are the helpful research sources um, in terms of um, kind of crafting Rachel's story and figuring out her character and her voice? Because I would imagine, you know, that there isn't like a a written record from, um, you know, these women at the time period. Uh, Yeah, so um, oral history is a a big part of um, what preserves these stories. And actually... Rachel is in, in particular inspired by one woman also called Rachel, who um, there's a book called To Shoot Hard Labour that's an oral history. It's a transcription of the life story of this man called Samuel Smith, who was uh, born in Antigua in the 1870s. But because he lived to be 103, he was able to tell his grandchildren in the 1970s his story. And um, he remembers his great great grandmother, a woman called Mother Rachel, who um walks from the south of Antigua up to the north of the island to find her daughter Minty. Uh, So that's one example of how a story can be preserved in the oral tradition. And there were other bits and pieces of that when I was particularly when I was out in the Caribbean talking to to my own family or to historians of the the region. There were little snippets like that that are preserved because as you say these are people who didn't really leave much behind by way of uh, written records. But I think also it was what you know my academic background was history and it was political theory but what I think drew me to being a a novelist was the fact that there are so many gaps and many of them that we can't fill with traditional historical methods so it makes sense to imagine your way into those gaps and um, you asked about you know building Rachel's character and there were these 
oral traditions they were tra- there were traces of, of written records but actually a big motivation for me or a big inspiration for me was um my own family I was thinking about my mother and I was thinking about my grandmother these wonderful black women in my life and I was thinking about the ways that they have adapted to the things that they have been through and how they've come out of the other side of those experiences changed in some ways but also with so much resilience and love and so yeah this is a historical story but it's also a personal one to me and that's um that interplay between what can we know from history but what do we have to imagine and how can we draw on our own experiences draw on the ways that history can kind of echo through time to form part of the people that we still have around us that was uh, all part of my research process I love that and you know as you are thinking about Rachel's character and kind of how you want to portray her um, are you are you somebody who was able to kind of see her story fully and kind of be more of a plotter and, and kind of outline it all out? Or um, were you kind of finding her journey, like as you went, maybe more of a pantser? Kind of what was your writing process like? Yeah, it was it was some somewhere in between. So uh, when I started the novel, I knew exactly how it would end. For me, I, I'm absolutely fascinated and borderline horrified by writers that start a book not knowing how it will end because that is the only thing that will keep me going I write sequentially so I start a draft and I go right through to the end and when it gets really tough and you think that it's the worst thing that's ever been written and you want to just give up I'm kind of crawling on my hands and knees just to reach that ending image that I have in mind because I so want to earn it emotionally and so I knew how the book would end Rachel's looking for five surviving children and I knew where each of them were what had happened to them but then some of the so I I, one of the things linking back to oral history actually one of the things I wanted to have in the book was this um these side characters that almost drift drift in and out of the narrative they might only be in the book for a chapter or two but they're able to help Rachel in some way or they shape uh, the direction of her journey and a lot of them were kind of created as I was going through according to what I needed Rachel to be able to have to get to the next step on her journey so I might know that you know there's one daughter in Trinidad but I don't know exactly how Rachel's going to get there I don't know once she gets there how she's going to know where this daughter is that kind of thing um so there was room for elements of surprise and actually one of the the biggest surprises is um a character I ended up being incredibly fond of um the uh, character called Nobody who's this uh, man that Rachel and her daughter meet on the ship on the way to British Guiana and like all of the characters, almost all of the characters in the novel, his name comes from a real historical register. So that was actually one of the resources I was using is you can go and read these slave registers where plantation owners would have to list all of the people on their plantations. And I saw that there was a real enslaved person called Nobody. And I thought, what an evocative name. I'm going to have to name a character after that. And the idea was that he would just be with them on the ship, maybe tell a couple of stories and then go. And I was so fond of him as I was writing him. I thought, I've got to keep him around. So he actually ends up becoming part of the the quest. So I always like to leave myself a bit of room to be surprised by things like that. But in terms of the underlying structure and shape of the story, when I started, I I did know where it was going. That's so interesting. I, I, I kind of love hearing that you're sort of writing your way toward those different, um, kind of conclusions. 
Well, you know, it's been, I'm sure, a very exciting experience to have um, your debut be so well received. And I did want to ask too, because I noticed it got me thinking about it because, you know, like so many books, there's different covers for the UK versus mm. the US version. And so that got me thinking about like, have you noticed anything different about um, how the book's been received um, in the UK versus here? Um, so I think that one of the things that struck me, which is actually not directly to do with the book and more to do with me and my connection to the story, is I was surprised when I came out to the US that the Windrush generation, this big migration from the Caribbean to the UK, was not very well known over here. And there's no reason it would be, but it's I, I kind of had forgotten that it's such a quintessentially British part of history that um, I found that doing a lot of interviews, I've... Uh, been asked to explain a bit more about my grandparents' story and their journey in a way that in the UK, that Windrush generation is just an automatic shorthand. Almost everyone will then know what you're talking about in terms of what time period your grandparents came over and what they have an idea of the kind of experiences that they would have had when they did. Um, so that's one thing that's been surprising. I think that in a way, because as I mentioned earlier, the the British sense of history in the Caribbean is not very acute it's felt quite similar in terms of having to explain these things like the apprenticeship period and people saying oh I had no idea that happened that actually feels the same in, in both places in a way that in an ideal world it, it, it wouldn't I think it would be more excusable for Americans not to be aware and then British people should be but actually because of the way that it's it's played out neither country is particularly aware um, and I guess the final thing that is has been really interesting to talk through with people is that I am really interested in the ways in which Caribbean and American slavery were, were different, but also the same. I actually, um, so I'm in, I'm in the US at the moment doing a bit of publicity for the book and I got the chance to go to Washington and I visited the National Museum of African American History, which was wonderful. And I was moved to tears by this one exhibit that was talking about, um, the period after the Emancipation Proclamation and it had these newspaper clippings of people trying to find their families and it was um people would put ads in newspapers saying you know has anyone heard anything about my two children these were their names this is when I last saw them their grandfather and father really want to know where they are we're living at this address and I just thought it was so poignant and moving that this was such a common experience you know the separation of family but also that daring hope of trying to put it back together again after slavery ended. So that's been really interesting to explore those, those things that are similar. But then there are also differences. And uh, one of the things, uh, you know, bodies of water and the natural world play a big part of the, the novel. And one of the things I was trying to draw out there is that in the American experience, there was always this dream, however distant and however impossible, of the northern route to freedom, the Underground Railroad, a way of running away and walking until you were somewhere that was almost safe whereas in the Caribbean the islands can be part of what can find you um at the beginning of the novel Rachel is running away and then she literally reaches the end of the island the sea and she can't go any further so little things like that I think have been fascinating to come to the US and talk to people about the book and be able to tease out you know what are the similarities what are the differences and what can that teach us about about the different histories of these places Yes, that's so interesting. And that scene really stood out to me as well, where she kind of reaches 
the water and thinking it is just such a uh, different, different hurdles to overcome. Um, and also to find her children too, because they could mm-hmm. be on any of the islands. Um, that is really interesting. Well, you know, I'm kind of wondering a little bit about sort of the journey to um, kind of the successful debut, like how long the book took you to write and did it take you a long time to, for instance, find an agent? Kind of what was the road like for you? Yeah, I think um, partly because I've been sitting on the idea for about 10 years. I was quite lucky that when I sort of seriously set pen to paper, it came quite quickly. And um I have now been lucky to meet quite a few different writers and I'm always so struck that everyone's process is is different. So I, I talk about my own process, not as kind of cast iron advice, but just as what worked for me. And what worked for me was writing every day. I went through quite a long period where I was waiting for inspiration to strike, kind of hoping that I'd get this bolt from the blue and then suddenly start working seriously. And then I... Uh, decided when the pandemic happened actually and I was lucky enough to have a job where I was working from home so I had quite a bit of free time I said well if I not go if I don't write this novel now I never will because time won't have been the the limiting factor so um I started treating it almost like a job in the same way that for my day job I would turn up even if I wasn't feeling great even if I wasn't feeling particularly motivated I would still actually go and do some work I set myself a word count of 500 words every day which felt small enough to be manageable and like it wasn't going to be this huge burden but also enough that you know you're seeing a few thousand words every week 10 or so thousand words every month it really does start to add up and that rhythm and routine of just doing it every day chipping away at it uh, keeping forward momentum as well not going back and tinkering because I'm a bit of a perfectionist I think that would have slowed me down and maybe meant I never finished I just thought I have to get words on the page however bad they are and then I can edit and shape it into something so with that plus uh, some editing time at the end I think it was all in all about nine months between sort of starting in earnest and then having a, a draft that I sent off and got an agent with and actually then was quite lucky because that part of the process was relatively quick it was kind of a few weeks to find an agent did a bit of work with them uh tweaking some things in the book and then uh found my publishers so yeah it's a it's um I feel very fortunate that uh the book has clearly resonated with um some people that then have helped bring it out into the world in this wonderful way yeah definitely and I do think it's interesting it just so happens that a lot of the authors I've talked to recently the books were being written um during the pandemic and I think it's going to be interesting kind of years from now to maybe you know find one bright spot in all of sort of the hardship and um Mm. of course all of the loss but um I think it's going to be interesting to sort of see when we're further out how many um like artistic works and books and things were the result maybe of of that time and some people thinking like it's now or never. Well, I always love kind of ending by hearing what books um, authors are enjoying kind of in their own reading lives lately. Is there anything you'd want to recommend to listeners? Yes, definitely. So I um, have read a couple of uh, Caribbean uh, authors recently that I've absolutely loved. So there's actually a debut that's coming out, uh, I think in the US in March and in the UK in April, uh, 
called The Human Origins of Beatrice Porter and Other Essential Ghosts by Soraya Palmer, who's an American writer whose family's from Jamaica and Trinidad. And it's this wonderful kind of ode to Caribbean storytelling with all these folkloric traditions woven into the narrative. Um, and I actually also recently read a book called August Town by a Jamaican author called Kai Miller that's all about this community in, in Jamaica. And both of the no- novels have a touch of the fantastic about them. I really love that magic realism tradition in, in Caribbean Caribbean literature. And then the final thing that I, um, I've been doing this trip to the US doing my publicity, so I've had quite a bit of time to read and by myself in cafes. And um, something I read recently that just really... <laughs> kind of astounded me was um there's a british author called robert harris this is quite an old book so it's maybe not new to that many people but it's called fatherland and it's this alternative history that imagines that um hitler won the second world war and it takes place in the german reich in the 1960s with a um police detective and what starts off as you think is a fairly ordinary detective story with a murder at its center then quickly spirals into something else and it was just so intricately and incredibly done uh as a historian i was very in awe of it so that was a um a real treat to read on my on my travels yeah oh those all sound so interesting i'll definitely link to them if listeners want to check them out well i just really um highly recommend that listeners go pick up river sing me home at their local bookstore get in your holds at the library um and i just really am so thankful that i got to chat with you and best of luck as you continue to do um all of your promotion here in the u.s thank you so much Uh, thank you for having me it's been delightful for links to all of the books mentioned on this week's episode, you can visit abookishhome.com. If you are enjoying the show, I hope you take a minute to subscribe and also rate and review wherever you get your podcast. And if you enjoyed this episode, I would encourage you to share it on social media to help other people find the show and this episode. Thanks for listening, everyone, and happy reading.